Welcome to From What If to What Next. I'm Rob Hopkins. The fact that you're listening to this means one of two things. The first might be that you've come across it through your usual podcast provider or at robhopkins.net. The second might be that you're a subscriber supporting the creation of these podcasts at www.patreon.com from what if to what next. If you're the former, it would be wonderful if you would consider transforming yourself butterfly-like into the latter. It really helps us to keep making these. And thank you for joining us here. landed through my letterbox this summer that provided great food for my imagination. Jane Davidson's book, Hashtag Future Gen, and Roman Krizanarik's The Good Ancestor, both focus on the importance of thinking in all that we do with the long term in mind. Indigenous people around the world have long practiced this, such as the great law of the Iroquois people who held that all decisions should be made with the seventh generation in mind. And yet we live in a world where decisions seem to be made on incredibly short timeframes, based on financial quarters, electoral cycles, or in response to opinion polls and focus groups, as a result of which we offload the results of our short-term thinking onto future generations in the most appallingly irresponsible way. While climate change is the most obvious example of our refusing to renegotiate our lifestyles today, in spite of knowing the impacts on future generations which will be ruinous, there are many others too. And so today we are looking into what it might actually be like to live in a world in which we lived in a way that puts the needs of future generations before our own. We'll be exploring, as the subtitle of Roman's book suggests, how to think long term in a short term world. And so our what if question for today's podcast is what if governments factored future generations into law and policy? I'm thrilled to be able to tell you that to discuss this, I'm joined by both Jane and Roman, my dream team, to explore this question. Some introductions. Jane Davidson is the author of Future Gen, Lessons from a Small Country. She's pro-vice-chancellor emeritus at the University of Wales, Trinity St. David. From 2007 to 2011, she was Minister for Environment and Sustainability in Wales, where she proposed legislation to make sustainability the central organising principle of government. The Wellbeing of Future Generations Wales Act came into law in 2015. She's an RSA fellow and in 2017 was guest faculty in the University Education for Sustainability Leadership Programme at Harvard University's T.H. Chan School of Public Health. Roman Krisnarik is a public philosopher who writes about the power of ideas to change society. His books, including Empathy, The Wonder Box and Carpe Diem Regained, have been published in more than 20 languages. His new book, The Good Ancestor, How to Think Long Term in a Short-Term World, was published in July 2020 and has been described by U2's The Edge as the book our children will thank us for reading. <laughs> 
Roman has been named by The Observer as one of Britain's leading popular philosophers. His writings have been widely influential amongst political and ecological campaigners, education reformers, social entrepreneurs and designers. An acclaimed public speaker, his talks and workshops have taken him from a London prison to Google's headquarters in California. He's previously been an academic, a gardener, worked on human rights issues in Guatemala, is a fanatical real tennis player and has a passion for making furniture, a fine long-term thinking practice if ever there was one. Welcome both. Delighted to be here. I'm looking forward to having my imagination stretched, Rob. Thanks for having me on. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much. So I'd like to start by inviting you both to join me uh, in an exercise we usually start this podcast with. I'd like to invite you both to close your eyes and to make yourselves comfortable. I'd also like to invite you listening at home uh, to do the same thing. I'd like you to imagine that thanks to this time machine I built at home during lockdown, we're travelling forwards through time towards 2030. Feel the years rush past you like wind. These 10 years we're passing through were a time of incredible transition and change where long-term thinking became a fundamental cornerstone of politics, of policymaking, of economics and finance, of education. This shift impacted public consciousness across society and led to a huge shift in values. We're now stepping out into that world, in many ways familiar, yet in other ways profoundly changed, by a historic shift in values and perspective and 10 years in which everything that could possibly have been done was done. It's been a remarkable time to have lived through. As we step out, blinking into the sunshine of a day in 2030, I'd like to invite you both to walk us through what you see, hear, smell, feel, touch. What might a day in the life be like? Give us some snapshots. How is it to be in a world that is the result of such a shift? Well, I'm imagining walking down the street of a large town and I come across the town square. And this is what's called the Pynix, P-Y-N-X, which is the ancient Greek word or the name of the place where they held their city assemblies, popular assemblies. And in this particular Pynix, in this imaginary town in 2030, there's a group of people, about 50 of them, and they're split into two halves. Half the group just wearing their normal clothes and the other half are wearing these amazing long green robes like Japanese kimonos and they're discussing the future of transport in the city and this discussion they're having is a citizens assembly. They've been randomly selected and it's based on a Japanese model called future design and what happens is the half who are wearing normal clothes are told that they're residents from the present day, and the other half with the great big green kimonos on are told to imagine themselves as residents from 30 years into the future. And all the experiments in Japan in the past have shown that the, those wearing the kimonos imagine themselves in the future come up with much more radical plans for their cities, whether it's climate change action or healthcare investment. So what I'm imagining here in 2030 is they're having a big discussion and the the, the people wearing the kimonos are coming up with these much more radical plans and they're having a great discussion. This is how decisions are made in this city using this future design methodology. So that's the first thing I see as I walk down the high street. But as I go further along, 
I see something else. I see somebody pick up their phone, uh, look at their phone, and they're going to buy something from Amazon. But weirdly, the uh, phone looks somewhat different because instead of the buy now button, when they press buy now, actually a drop down menu comes. And you can have an option to buy now, but there's also options to buy in a week, buy in a month, buy in a year, or borrow from a friend. So if you press the buy in a month button, then you'll get an email in the month's time seeing if you still want that item. And this is a radical change in the nature of consumption that is happening in this uh, imaginary town in the year 2030. And then if I go slightly even further along, I see a public park and there are long trestle tables and there are people from the city having their annual Sunday conversation meal. And their strangers sit together in pairs and in front of them is a menu, but not a menu of food, but a menu of conversation. And on that menu are questions about future generations, intergenerational justice, taking the long view. So questions like, what do you think should be the ultimate goal of the human species? Or what legacy do you want to leave for your family, your community, and for the living world? Or what for you are the most powerful reasons for caring about future generations? And it's like the opposite of speed dating. People talk for an hour, not for a minute. So this town, as you're walking through it, is constantly in a dance between the present and the future. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Jane? I'm in a house that was built in 1760. And back in the early 2000s, we refurbished this house to make it as sustainable as possible. And one of the things that we've discovered living in it is that although it was originally built as a barn, it has the most wonderful natural aspect, both in terms of being able to benefit from the light and the sun when that comes in, but also, and that's particularly important today on an incredibly hot day, um, I'm told it may be the hottest day that uh, we've ever seen in the UK, it also keeps us cool without any other intervention. Stone walls, well insulated, using solar in terms of driving our use of energy, our creation of hot water, and with excellent battery storage. And I'm looking out at a set of fields around me, fields that back in the first decade of this century, I was really worried about because of the level of chemicals that they put into the soil, because of the fact that they were total monocultures, because the stream at the bottom of our land and where that meets the field had no fish in it. And I was incredibly worried about the fact that we were seeing such extraordinary extinctions happening around us, even though we, a tiny beacon with only 10 acres, was growing organically. But I look at that now, and even though the weather is absolutely awful in its heat, what I'm seeing is a complete change in that landscape. Because over the last decade, what has happened is that the sustainable development goals signed up by 193 UN countries are being delivered. They're not all being delivered by this year, which is what was hoped when people originally signed up. But here in the country of Wales, where Wales was the first country in the world 
in 2015 to actually sign up to a legal mechanism to deliver on those sustainable development goals. The awful experience of COVID in 2020 brought a whole set of other nations to understand how important it was to think long term. And now across the world, nations have legal mechanisms in terms of delivering on the sustainable development goals. And those goals that are not yet met can be met for the future. But back to my garden and the fields around me. Place is so important in terms of how we take an agenda around sustainability forward. And I'm now looking out on a place that feels entirely different. The monoculture has gone. The farming has been changed forever by requirements that were put in place by the Welsh Government in 2020 to ensure that the future of farming was based on the sequestration of carbon, the purification of water, the undredging of the rivers to bring fish back again, the reintegration of woods and hedgerows. What we're seeing in the context of the biodiversity loss outlined in 2020 through the Living Planet Report, some 70% reduction in biodiversity is being changed, that there is nature recovering as a result of the long-term efforts that are pulling the dangerous chemicals out of the system and contributing towards restoring nature. Wow, fantastic. Thank you both so much. Yeah, I'd sign up for that. That sounds absolutely glorious. So so I'd like to start with a question to you both. Clearly, you both strongly believe that we live in a world in which short-term thinking currently dominates. I wonder if you might set out for the listener how you see that manifesting in the world. What do we see as a result of it? And are there any times when thinking short-term is actually a, a sensible approach? I think what has been really interesting about the um, the development of, of, of the idea about introducing long-term thinking into government delivery in Wales has been that initially there was a total lack of recognition that governments were short-term. And that lack of recognition was based on the fact that governments of, of all countries, or certainly all democracies, move in cycles. And many countries have governments that have, for example, five-year terms. And therefore, five-year term starts to become equated with long-term thinking. And if five-year term is long-term thinking, then that is being delivered by governments when they put their manifestos together for the next election. However, what became increasingly clear to me and others in government in Wales, which had a duty right from the very beginning of the establishment of the National Assembly in 1999 to promote sustainable development in everything we did, is that five years was not enough. And I remember proposing, for example, major changes to um, the curriculum in Wales, both in primary, secondary and universities to incorporate um, sustainable development uh, into the curriculum. And such changes for a curriculum can take anything up to about 15 years because of the time people spent in educational settings in terms of taking a whole cohort through a new kind of experience. And you suddenly realise that if that changes, 
with a new administration coming in, then you could end up with five years work in one direction, five years work in another, but actually potentially the learners in Wales would be no better off. And it suddenly struck me like a force that if we didn't start thinking longer term, if we didn't win people to the debate, then we wouldn't be able to tackle the big problems that were facing us, whether they were around climate change, whether the immediate problems we're facing around COVID, whether they were around the Black Lives Matter and the inequality issues around how we create more cohesive communities, how we become more globally responsible. And it's those sort of epiphany moments that meant that I kind of redoubled my efforts back in 2007 to create a vision with the people of Wales, for the people of Wales, which we actually called One Wales, One Planet, to try and get people to engage with the idea that we must look after future generations as we look after current generations. And what this effectively means is that most of our decisions are taken in the context of present future. We apply the thinking of the present to our thinking for the future. And often we use models that have been in place for 30 years. That is totally the wrong way to do things. We have to become future present thinkers so that our thinking is about how can we ensure just as the people who built my house back in 1760 can ensure that what we are creating will last for generations. And suddenly that short-termism disappears because when you do that, you're actually being totally countercultural, and it's really hard for people to deliver. And as you know, Rob, my book is actually about how hard this is to deliver in terms of the stories over the 20 years that it has been enabled to happen. But I just finish on, on this point that if we want to ensure that governments think about future generations, we cannot enable that to happen when we know that Wales is still in 2020 the only country in the world that has signed up both to the Brundtland definition of sustainable development and put that into law, development that meets the needs of the present without compromising future generations meeting their own needs, and the only country to have signed up legally to a mechanism to deliver on the sustainable development goals. It means that aspirations and commitments by individual administrations are not enough. So long term has to be future generations thinking and must be enshrined in law. Hence my belief that if, if in 2030 we can encourage many other governments across the world to deliver long term thinking in law, in the way that they take decisions, we will see dramatic changes for the future. Thank you. Thank you. And so, Roman, I wonder how you see short-term thinking manifesting in the world. What, what are its impacts? Well, I believe we live in an age of the tyranny of the now. You know, like Jane, the short-termism, I see it, you know, in everyday politics with politicians who can't see past the next election or the latest tweet or even the latest headline. Um, businesses can't see past the quarter report. Markets spike, then crash in speculative bubbles. Nations sit around international conference tables, bickering away about their near-term interests while the planet burns and species disappear. And of course, as individuals, we are clicking the buy now button and answering the latest text. 
So that short-term thinking is deep within our culture. It doesn't just come from our phones, though. It goes back to the medieval period where the, with the invention of the first mechanical clock, where time started being speeding up. The future started rushing at us faster and faster. By 1700, most clocks had minute hands. By 1800, they had second hands. And of course, now we're in an age of nanosecond speed share trading. So time is moving too fast for the kinds of problems that we face, because we face multiple long-term issues, um, some of which we've talked about already. There is, you know, the, of course, the issues around the ecological crisis, climate change, biodiversity loss, getting off our short-term addiction to fossil fuels. There's the short-termism around technology. Are we thinking long-term about the potential effects of artificial intelligence and lethal autonomous weapons? Then there is the short-termism around kinds of inequality, which get passed on from generation to generation, racial inequality, wealth inequality, deeply embedded in our political, economic, and cultural systems and institutions like uh, our policing systems. So there's a need for long-termism everywhere in public health too, of course, to get ready for the next pandemic on the horizon. And the way I think about this in general is that I believe humankind has colonized the future. We treat it like a distant colonial outpost where we can freely dump ecological damage and technological risk as if there was nobody there. And it's a bit like the way when Britain colonized Australia in the 18th and 19th century, they drew on a legal doctrine now known as terra nullius, uh, nobody's land. They treated the continent as if there were no indigenous people there. Of course, they were. And I think today what we've also got is tempus nullius. We see the future as nobody's time and uninhabited place that's kind of ours for the taking. And the tragedy is that future generations aren't here to do anything about it. They can't you know, leap in front of the king's horse like a suffragette or stage a sit-in like a civil rights activist or go and assault march to defy their colonial oppressors like Mahatma Gandhi. They have no political rights or representation. They have no influence in the marketplace. And I think that's why things like what's going on in Wales, as Jane's talking about with the Wellbeing for Future Generations Act, um, is so fundamental and so important. Of course, we need to recognize that short-term thinking does have its place too, as you originally asked, that governments need to be agile and respond to the moment. And they, just as individuals, you know, your, your kid gets injured or something, you need to go and take them to the hospital. And we have those emergencies we must deal with, whether it is a pandemic or an earthquake or other things. But there's also an urgency needed with respect to the long-term challenges. The great paradox is that we need long-term thinking right here, right now. We need to act right here, right now on the climate crisis, for example. Um, so we need a, a kind of agility in government and in policymaking to be able to respond to these long crises. And ultimately, I hope that we can create a society where we can win the tug of war for time. There's a tug of war going on constantly in our own minds between the drivers of short-term and long-term thinking. Do I upgrade to the latest iPhone or plant a seed in the ground for posterity? Do I party today or save my pension for tomorrow? And of course, in politics, one's engaged in this kind of tug of war as well. There are immediate concerns, but there are long-term concerns too. And what I believe is absolutely fundamental is that we must bring future generations into the conversation when we're talking about policy decisions and you know in areas such as the way governments discount the future they put less weight on the potential impacts of public policy on future generations you know this is a form of intergenerational injustice dressed up as a rational economic methodology and it's time to become a bit more imaginative and 
look at the future in a different way and decolonize the future. Roman, you, you recently shared on social media a list of what you saw as being long-term thinking projects from history, examples of what you call cathedral thinking, projects whose benefits accrue mostly to the generations who follow after those who started them. Could you give us some examples? I found it a really inspiring list. Well, human history is full of examples of us taking a long view, embarking on projects going decades, sometimes centuries into the future, things that we may never see finished in our lifetimes, like those medieval cathedral builders who started constructing cathedrals knowing they'd never be finished in their lifetimes, like Alminster in southwest Germany was started in 1377 and the local residents decided they wanted to make their own church finance it themselves. Well, it wasn't finished until 1890, more than 500 years later. I think it was the world's greatest crowdfunding project, certainly one of the longest ones. <laughs> there are a lot of other examples you know, such as the sewers built in Victorian London in the 19th century after the great stink of 1858, masterminded by Sir Joseph Bazalgette, the chief engineer. He made, along with his 22,000 workers, the, the tunnels and the sewage tunnels twice as big as they needed to be with uh, using 318 million very high quality expensive bricks. He didn't need to use those. That's why those sewers are still in use today. But let's not think that Cathedral thinking is just about religious buildings or even public works projects. There's also cathedral thinking in, um, for example, social movements, which take the long view. When the first suffragette organization was founded in 1867, they didn't think they were going to achieve their aims in weeks or months. Well, in fact, it was more than half a century before the suffragettes achieved the basic aim of votes for women. So social movements too need to take the long view. And then look at the arts. There's a wonderful arts project by the Scottish artist Katie Patterson, which I love, called Future Library. And it's a 100-year art project. And every year for a century, a famous writer is donating a book which will remain completely hidden and secret in the Future Library. And then in the year 2114, the 100 books will be printed on paper made from a thousand trees that have been planted in a forest growing now just outside Oslo. And the first person to donate a book was Margaret Atwood, Elif Shafak, and other great writers have been part of the project. And just think, Margaret Atwood is never going to meet people who are going to read her book. She's going to be long dead. You know, she'll never see it published in her lifetime. And this is about leaving gifts to the future, about the legacies we're going to leave. And I think that is one of the ways that I discuss in my book, The Good Ancestor, how we can start rethinking our relationship with the future, thinking about that legacy. How do we want to be re remembered by those future generations who are looking at us? now as we speak. This podcast focuses on the imagination and how we cultivate the best conditions for the expansion of our collective imagination. How do you both see the connection between thinking long-term and imagination? How does thinking in the longer term help us to be more open to possibilities and imaginative thinking in the present? I think just also picking up on what Roman's just been saying, we, have, we can see imagination in politics. When we look back at the, you know, the post-war generation, for example, they wanted their children to succeed to make up for their ultimate sacrifice. They wanted us, because I'm one of those children, to have lives without war, without want, with opportunity, with full employment, with decent housing. And 
when we think about those sort of big visions, we also see some big solutions that came out in terms of council housing, for example, the establishment of the NHS, the education legislation. They were big imaginative visions and they were not complete as ideas in the context of when they were first developed. It then took many, many years for them to be developed. And of course, in many ways, they're being currently dismantled in an ideological way at the moment. But I think what excites me is that you can have really imaginative ideas in the political context. And the person who generated the really imaginative idea in the context of Wales I don't even know who it was, but I would never have been able to propose what is now the Wellbeing of Future Generations Act if people before me hadn't already put into the duty for the new National Assembly for Wales in 1999, uh, the duty to promote sustainable development and everything that we did. Now, we know that came from civil society in Wales. We know that politicians in the House of Commons at the time were happy to support it. We know that Wales is the only part of the UK that inherited that kind of duty in the context of devolution. But that is how ideas happen. It was people thinking that Wales is already a kind of green and pleasant land. And could it become greener? Could it be a beacon in this area? And I felt like a steward of Wales in the context of my being given the role to lead on that in 2007 and feeling that was a duty that needed to be delivered. But what the amazing thing was is that people didn't tell me how to do that. I was able then to, to conduct that engagement with others and get support, for, particularly from the public, because it had to be about creating legislation that was for Wales, by Wales. And I think one of the really exciting thing for a minister um, in the context of imagination is that your big idea, you have to have um, faith in enough to be able to put it out there so that other people with other skills can help you deliver it. And the Wellbeing of Future Generations Act is as much a product of the NGOs in Wales, of people, the length and breadth of Wales who participated in discussions about what a piece of legislation like that would do for them in the context of permission to think differently. So in many ways, Wales is a really good example of how an imaginative approach prior to the assembly being established enabled me, a minister who happened to be in the right place at the right time with the right the right commitments and belief and philosophy, it's the carpe diem moment about if you pull all those things together, then you actually can, can actually move the world or move, move mountains. If we really want to see a different kind of world and governments behave differently, how do we create the optimum conditions for ministers to feel confident that they are working with what their populations want? And of course, often chaos helps in that. And what COVID has shown us is that when people uh, have to get on and survive, then actually their behaviour changes in all sorts of ways and all sorts of ways they like how they want their futures to look like. And that does include nature. That includes very, very different uh, town centres, which is why I love 
Romans proposition, we can create all sorts of new ideas. And what's been amazing through this period of lockdown is not only do we find we can talk across the world with all those people and experts and conversants and discussants about what could happen, but actually we're starting to see people do little projects and sometimes very big projects in their communities or put ideas together globally. And it'd be, you know, really, really exciting to capture those for the future. Mm, fantastic. And Roman, how, how do you see that link between long-term thinking and imagination? I think imagination is the most crucial tool for creating a longer sense of now and a world of intergenerational justice. And the reason is because we can't meet the people of the future. They haven't been born yet. We can't talk to them. We can't walk in their shoes. So how do we do it? Of course, some cultures, such as the Iroquois culture, you mentioned the idea of seventh generation decision making, those that sense of connection with generations past and future is very strong. But in our hyper-individualized consumer culture, we are very cut off from those future generations. So we need the imagination to make that leap, to make that empathic connection. Um, in order to do that, I'd like to be a little bit cheeky. I've just decided and take uh, you, Rob, and Jane, and listeners to this on a small imaginative journey, a little exercise I've developed called, I call it the Great Chain of Life. It's kind of based roughly on the work of Joanna Macy, deep ecologist. So what I'd like you to do is just to close your eyes for a moment and imagine in your mind's eye a child in your life who you really care about. It could be a uh, grandchild or child or your, your nephew or niece or just some other young person that you know, a young neighbor. So just with your eyes shut, picture them in your mind's eye for a moment. Look at their face. Now I'd like you to imagine them 30 years in the future. Again, just picture their face. Think about the joys in their life and the challenges they might be facing. And now I'd like you to imagine that child on their 90th birthday. It's their 90th birthday party and they're surrounded by family and friends and colleagues and loved ones. You look out the window. What's happening in that world outside the window? And then you go again and look into their 90-year-old face. Look into their eyes, their slightly fading eyes. And then someone comes over and puts a tiny baby into their arms. It's their first great-grandchild. And they look into that baby's eyes and they ask themselves, what will this child need to survive and thrive for the years and decades ahead? And just sit with that thought for a moment. And now just open your eyes again and think that that tiny baby could be alive well into the 22nd century. That's just a couple of steps away from our own lives. So I think the future isn't really science fiction. It's an intimate family fact. And I think that kind of little thought experiment can help us make an imaginative leap from the present into the future, from a very narrow, familial sense of legacy, caring about just our own progeny, to something actually wider. Because what I think of when I imagine, for example, my 11-year-old son as a 90-year-old, I see that he is not all alone. Uh, he is surrounded by a web of family and friends and community, and also the web of the living world, the air he breathes, you know, the food that he eats, 
the water he drinks. So if I care about his life and for his great-grandchild's life, I need to care about all life. And I think that is the benefit of this imaginative journeying, even though I know it can be very confronting for people, particularly if you've got a dark vision of the future like me, somewhat apocalyptic at times, as well as sometimes more uh, hopeful or optimistic. But I think that small exercise is one way of recognizing or really showing that imagination has to be in our toolbox as much as the number crunching data sets and clever legal approaches that we also need. Jane, you've talked about the Wellbeing of Future Generations Act in Wales. How now that that has uh, been law for a while, how are you seeing that that is in, in practical terms in day-to-day reality helping Wales to think more long-term? I think the most important thing about it is that it is a values framework and it's not a, a political values framework in the sense of being party political. It was a values framework that was signed up to by the Parliament of Wales and therefore it is already a cross-party initiative that will be tested first in the most major way at the next election in May 2021. But what we're seeing and what is really exciting is that there are already some quite dramatic changes in Wales in terms of the way people are taking forward their obligations. And just very briefly, the Wellbeing of Future Generations Act has seven goals linked to prosperity, which is described in law as innovative, productive and low carbon, recognising the limits of the global environment and using resources efficiently and proportionately, including acting on climate change. The Resilient Wales Goal, it talks about maintaining and enhancing a biodiverse natural environment and acting on climate change. And there are goals as well to become healthier, which is about physical and mental well-being, to be more equal, no matter what their socio-economic background and circumstances. A Wales of cohesive communities, a vibrant culture and thriving Welsh language, and very importantly, a globally responsible Wales, so that when Wales does anything uh, to improve its own economic, social, environmental and cultural well-being, which is what it's required to do by the law, it takes account of whether doing that thing may make a positive contribution to global well-being, i.e., immediately what it does not allow Wales to do when it creates its innovative, productive and low carbon society and enhancing biodiversity is to offshore its climate emissions. So it's a very important piece of legislation because those goals are in the law. But what's almost more important, as we're finding in the delivery of it, is that there is a mechanism for delivery in the law. And that requires the Welsh Government and all the public services which are under the authority and control of the Welsh Government to think long term, to think preventatively, to integrate their thinking with others and others' objectives, to collaborate with others to meet their objectives. And really importantly, to involve those about whom decisions are being made in those decisions. So those elements already are making a difference. If you just look at legislation that's been made in Wales since that law was passed, Wales has now outlawed smacking. Wales has put in place opportunities for 16 to 18 year olds to vote and already has 
a children's commissioner, the first part of the UK to have a children's commissioner that was then followed up by all other nations. Wales is the first part of the UK to go for presumed consent on organ donation. The Welsh government decided not to go forward with an M4 relief road, a relief road that had been in the mix for 25 years. The Welsh government has also working with one of its local authorities, is prepared to give land back to some communities in the South Wales Valleys, the industrial communities built on coal and and iron, give land back to those communities in perpetuity to deliver according to the spirit of the Wellbeing of Future Generations Act. So there are all sorts of ways in which this is being taken forward. And to assist those, there is both the uh, the audit office, which has a duty in publicing, publicly auditing public sector organisations, but also the Future Generations Commissioner's Office. And uh, her office comes forward with a number of ideas to help public sector organisations both understand who is doing what at the moment, but also the opportunities for the future. So the fact that the law itself both has a set of goals in law, so effectively any organisation could take those public bodies to account for not delivering on the law, the fact that it has the ways of working, which was seen as a key issue in terms of delivery of the previous commitment to put sustainable development at the heart of government, it's really important that this is not in the ownership of one political party. It is in the ownership of the parliament uh, in passing the legislation. So whichever party or parties come into government in Wales in May next year, they will also be bound by it. So we're recording this podcast just at the end of two weeks of Extinction Rebellion's We Want to Live Rebellion in London and other places. And Roman, you call in your book for a time rebellion. The question of this podcast is, what if governments factored future generations into law and policy? So where would be the most skillful place to begin pushing in order to bring this about? How might we begin and drive forward a time rebellion? Well, I think every country will need to pursue its own path, depending on its particular culture and context. So as Jane's been talking there in Wales, the mechanism of the Wellbeing for Future Generations Act has been a really important way of doing it. Now, if you go to the United States, where I see one of the most important movements being in the legal sphere. So there's an organization called Our Children's Trust, which has filed a landmark case against the US government on behalf of 21 young people campaigning for the legal right to a clean climate and healthy atmosphere for both current and future generations. In other words, they're trying to enshrine in constitutional law the idea that future people have rights. This is one of the most significant shifts in the history of rights since the French Revolution, in my view. And this Our Children's Trust case, which is going on, it's been going on for five years, they may not be successful. This is David versus Goliath stuff. This case, though, is having huge impact around the world. It's impacted on major lawsuits in more than 20 countries, in Uganda, in the Netherlands, and other places as well. So I never would have thought that I would have been such an advocate for the law. I've always seen the law as a form of uh, oppression, as it were, a a way of solidifying the power of those who control making the laws. But what I see in in respect to future generations is that these legal struggles are going to be really important. Not only that legal struggles to give future people rights, 
which might sound crazy to us, but is starting to happen now, but also the legal struggles to give rights to the living world, legal personhood to living things. So, you know, in New Zealand, in Aotearoa, New Zealand, the Wanganui River, sacred to local Maori peoples, now has legal personhood, has the same rights as a person in the same way that in the late 19th century, corporations in the United States were given legal personhood. In India, the Ganges and Yamuna rivers have legal personhood. So these legal struggles, I think, are one of the fundamental places where we need to act in terms of public policy. I think we need to radically reinvent education as well, that we should be teaching ideals of intergenerational justice as part of sustainable development, teaching and all these kind of thinking, futures thinking, so that our children grow up as ecological natives and digital natives and future thinking natives. Again, some countries are very forward thinking in this area. So in Canada, for example, many schools are drawing on curriculum materials developed by the David Suzuki Foundation, where they have classroom discussions about, okay, if you're going to reinvent the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and put in new clauses for future generations, what would those clauses look like? So I think this multi-pronged approach is what's going to make progress. And we are already seeing progress. It doesn't necessarily feel like suddenly we're overthrowing the old model of representative democracy. It's still powerful and here to stay for some years. But I think that in many countries, we're seeing really serious and imaginative examples of rethinking what our political systems look like. And I think that is how we start becoming time rebels in politics by stretching out the time horizons of decision making, stretching out the demos itself. So that demos includes the views and welfare and interests of the generations to come, the billions upon billions of people who will be born in the coming centuries. Thank you. And Jane, any thoughts on on, on how we might spark and drive forward the time rebellion? I think the word culture is so important here. Most people think of introducing kind of sustainable development as a concept, as um, it was once described to me as a three-legged stool with sort of society, environment and economy as the three legs. The Wellbeing of Future Generations Act in Wales, I describe as a sort of four-legged Eisteddfod chair, a grand, um, absolutely solid and stable approach. And that stability is related to the addition of culture as a fourth principle or pillar, because culture is so so important on so many levels. It's important in the context of a country's identity and heritage and it's not just about a country it could be an organization it could be a community it could be a city it could be a town it could be a place any organization or group of people who wants to take an idea like this forward must actively think about the culture of their organization we know of that phrase about culture eats strategy for breakfast and i've discovered that so many times in my life as minister and also my life and 10 years in a university because actually if you're going to change behavior you have to change the culture of the organization and the two things are absolutely linked so What I'm advocating through my book is not that people take on the Wellbeing of Future Generations Act in Wales and deliver it in their own country as it is being delivered in Wales. 
The reason we call it Lessons from a Small Country is that it explores all those issues around how to change the culture, how difficult it is, but sometimes just at the point that you think it's not going to work, you'll get an extraordinary success, an amazing an epiphany will strike somebody who has realised for the first time that they're involved in a governmental process that thinks about tomorrow and not the day after tomorrow, and certainly not future generations, future centuries. But I think it's also really important to make it human. I loved the way that Roman was just describing thinking and imagining the child when you're thinking about what decisions that you want to make. And I certainly know that using the framing of future generations is actually quite successful as a framing that manages to be less partisan than some of the ideas, for example, around talking about climate change or talking about rewilding or talking about biodiversity where nobody knows what the word means anyway. And finding a way of framing, looking after your families, your communities' futures, seems to me a very effective framing for getting people onto the page in the context of decision-making. So that notion of culture must still be around the heritage, about arts, about identity, in our case in Wales, very explicitly around language, about that relationship with other parts of the UK, all those issues. But it also has to be about what constitutes behaviour change, not as a nudge, because we don't have time for a nudge, but behaviour change as an understanding of whether the actions that we take individually and collectively damage or enhance the opportunity for our children, our children's children and their children's children to live successfully as future generations. What does bring that message home immediately is when somebody does have a new grandchild. And when we think about our anticipation, and like Roman, I, I really alternate between being really optimistic that we'll wake up to the needs and very pessimistic that we'll wake up quickly enough. But when we think about what the science is telling us about the world we're going to live in by 2050, we are condemning those young people who we love so much to an appalling future unless we act now. Roman's phrase about being a good ancestor is all I've ever wanted to be, but I hadn't discovered the phrase uh, until, until I came upon that. So if we are going to be good ancestors, then we actually need to be calling on governments to make legislation with future generations in mind, to have those futures in our present, instead of applying our present thinking to how we deal with the future. Thank you, Jane. What a beautiful point to to draw things to a close. Thank you both. Uh, thank you both so much for a, a deep and rich exploration of our topic. Thank you. Thank you, Rob, and thanks, Jane. Thank you both. I really enjoyed this discussion. So my thanks so much to Roman and to Jane and my thanks to Ben Adicott for theme music and production, to everyone who subscribes and makes this podcast possible and see you next time. Mm-hmm.